the ending of the book of Acts from a literature perspective comes abruptly. If you want to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 28 and the last two verses, 30 and 31. This is speaking of Paul. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, the last several chapters in the book of Acts have seemed like almost like a biography of Paul. In fact, we've been tracing his, his steps from, from uh, the Jewish courts to the courts of Festus and Felix and, and the Tribune and, and before King Agrippa. And now he's appealed to Rome and he's here in Rome. And the book just ends with these words. It doesn't tell us what actually happened to Paul. It's, a, it's an abrupt ending to literature. We don't know, did he get a fair trial before Caesar? We don't know, was he set free? Was he killed? Actually, history seems to indicate that, that he did die there in Rome. But Acts tells us nothing about it. If he was killed, why was he killed? He was found innocent at every other level. The tribute, the uh, Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. What made Caesar think differently? Why was he put to death? Why doesn't Luke resolve these questions in the book of Acts? The reason is this. The book of Acts is not a biography of Paul. If you read the end of the book or the beginning of the book of Acts, you might think that the book of Acts is a biography of Peter, but it is also not a biography of Peter. The book of Acts is the story of the mission of God's church. And because of that, there is no conclusion. There is no conclusion. There is no tidy bow placed upon the story of Acts because we, the collective community of God's people, are the continuing story of the book of Acts. The theologian Will Willimon wrote this, you and I live in the continuation of the story of Acts. Acts must close in an open-ended fashion with the door still open for work and witness rather than close by death and conclusion because the Spirit is still active. The final verses are a summary, a summary of the church's mission. And I want us to see four points within these two final verses. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Four points about the mission continuing. The Bible says he lived there two years and he welcomed all who came to him. All who came to hear about Jesus, Paul welcomed them. All who wanted to know more about Jesus, Paul was welcoming to all of them. This is the first point. The mission of Jesus is about welcoming people, welcoming, presenting ourselves in such a way that, that we are inviting to people. I want to illustrate the importance of this mentality, this mindset through two stories and a Twitter conversation. This first point is a little bit longer than the rest, but it's because I think in this day and age, we, we've forgotten what it truly looks like to be welcoming and the importance of it. 
Two stories in a Twitter conversation. The first story is about one of my heroes in the faith who I look forward to meeting when hopefully we're both in heaven, and that is Billy Graham. Billy Graham, of course, died a few years ago. He was uh, America's pastor for decades and decades. In 1949, Billy Graham preached a crusade in Los Angeles, a, a evangelistic series in Los Angeles. It was kind of his, his uh, moment of appearing on the scene. He got all kinds of headlines out of this and his ministry just exploded. And in that 1949 crusade, uh, Billy Graham, Pastor Graham said this, communism is a religion that is inspired, directed, and motivated by the devil himself who has declared war against Almighty God. And then Graham began to name people in Los Angeles that he felt were associated with communism and why we needed to oppose them. This was his way of doing evangelism at the time. Now Graham held his views, his opposition to communism for the rest of his life. But as he got older, he stopped shouting it from the mountaintop. In fact, his, his position in which he, early in his ministry, he saw that his mission, part of his mission was to oppose communism and all people associated with communism. He shifted and he realized that his mission was to welcome all people associated within communism to come and to hear about Jesus. His rhetoric changed. As God worked on his heart, he realized that, that, that rhetoric, rhetoric castigating these people was not the way to share Jesus with them. And in it, if you read his biographies, if you read books about him, you see that, that, that this mind shift had an impact on his ministry. In fact, his mind, this mind shift also impacted how some viewed him. If you were alive in the early 1980s, you would have read headlines about how Billy Graham was becoming soft on communism, how he was opposed to, to uh, how he was, he was being fooled by communism. His own college, Wheaton College, wrote that he was duped by the communist. But all of those that were criticizing Billy Graham and his positions were not preaching to people about Jesus in Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and East Germany and the toughest of all, in Billy Graham's estimation, Romania. But Billy Graham was there telling all those people about Jesus. When his mind shift, mindset shifted from the communists being his opponents to how can I welcome them in to know more about Jesus, his whole ministry shifted. And in fact, he had a great impact on history because of this. Dan Rather, the former CBS news anchor, in a 2001 interview, a man who had been quite critical of Billy Graham, he said this in 2001, Graham's efforts contributed to the fall of communism and in no small way. He was right, I was wrong, big time. That was his assessment. When he became a person that didn't have rhetoric against, but rather welcoming people in, his ministry shifted. The second story. In 1997, Rosaria Butterfield, she was an English and women's studies professor at Syracuse University. She was the author of Syracuse, she is the author of Syracuse's university's policy on same-sex relationships. She was an active participant in those relationships 
And in 1997, there was a group known as the Promise Keepers that came to her area. Now, for those of you that might not remember, the Promise Keepers it was an evangelical men's movement that was calling men to, to, to rise up and to be witnesses for God. They held the biblical position of sexuality, but as someone who attended their gatherings, I can tell you they were not gentle in their rhetoric towards these issues. And so when they were coming to her area, to the Syracuse area, Rosario Butterfield, as an English professor, as, as someone who had very opposing views to them, she decided to write an article, an opinion piece in the local newspaper, opposing their presence in her town against her natural enemies. She wrote this article and, and being the great writer that she was, it got uh, mass distribution and it had an impact on both sides. It had such an impact that, that Butterfield says that she, she put one Xerox box on one side of her desk and a Xerox box on the other side of her desk. And on one side, she put in all the fan mail of the people that agreed with her position and they, they put it there in that box. And on the other side of her desk was another box. It was a different type of fan mail, also known as hate mail. And it was from primarily Christians who were telling her how awful she was and how wrong her views were. And, and so she filled up that box and she said she had these two boxes full, these two Xerox boxes full of letters. And she would, she would read those letters, the one letter, oh, great job, great job. Yeah, way to call it those Christians. And she put that in the fan box. And the other side, oh, you're gonna die. You're gonna burn in hell. God's gonna destroy you and people like you. And she put that in the other box. And, and both positions actually affirmed her beliefs. One affirmed what she believed from a social standpoint, the other affirmed what she believed about Christians, that they were hateful individuals. But then she got one letter. She said she got a letter that baffled her because she didn't know which box to put it in. Because this letter, while it disagreed with her views, it was so loving and kind and welcoming. In fact, she was disturbed by it. She read it. She says she, she was bothered by it. She crumpled it up and she threw it in the trash can. And then she left her office. Later that afternoon, she came back and, and, and she pulled it out of the trash bin. She unwrinkled it and she put it on her desk. And she said, for several days, that letter just sat there staring at me. Which box do I put this in? And then finally, her curiosity got the best of her. And she reached out to this man, this local pastor in Syracuse who had written her this letter that was against her views, but was so gracious and kind and loving. And when she reached out to this man, Pastor Ken Smith, he invited her over to his house to have a meal with him. And so she went over with her partner and they had a meal together with Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd. And it began a beautiful friendship. In fact, in Rosario's own words, she said, Pastor Ken was safe because he did not ask me to change. Not once did he invite me to church, but rather he brought the church to me week after week, meal after meal, Bible discussion after Bible discussion, answering all her questions with conviction. And she says, and according to the word of God, but gently and graciously. And the result, again, her own words, two years later, this has gone on for two years. Then one ordinary day, she says, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. 
In this war of worldviews, Kin was there. Floyd was there. Jesus triumphed. I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song. She's obviously an English major, the sanguine love song. In the rubble of my world, I weakly believe that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make my world right. Where most of the letters from the Christians shunned her and cast her out, one letter from one simple local pastor said, let me welcome you into my family. And it changed her world. The Bible tells us, as we see this summary of the mission of the church at the end of the book of Acts, that Paul welcomed all. I want us to understand the significance actually of what this means when it says Paul welcomed all. Jump back in your Bibles to verse 16 there in chapter 28. And look what it says in verse 16. And when Paul came into Rome, he was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. And then verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. He called together the local leaders of the Jews. Paul is in Rome. He is there because the Jews wanted to kill him. He is there because the Jewish leaders have accused him of heresy. He is there because the Jewish people hated him. And who does he reach out to as soon as he gets to the city? These people that would be seen as his natural enemies, his fellow Jews. And in verses 23 and 24, what does he try to do? For this very night, or uh, in verse 28, or chapter 28, when they had appointed a day for him, that's when they decided to come meet with him, they came to him at his, at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Paul, no matter how badly or how much of an enemy one people group might have been perceived, what he saw were people that needed to be welcomed in and loved in the name of Jesus. Like Pastor Ken Smith and his wife, Floyd, to Rosaria, like Dr. Billy Graham, to the communists. The Bible tells us that Paul welcomed all that were willing to hear about Jesus. This is such an important point for the day and age in which we are living. All of us up here probably have some form of social media, probably many of you do. And what we see there and what we see on the news is this bifurcating of who the gospel is for or who I'm responsible for sharing the gospel with. This is the Twitter conversation I want to share with you. I read this Twitter tweet just this last week. This is from a pastor. The more I hang with Jesus, the less I want to be with religious people the less I want to go to churchy events or spend time debating theology. Instead, I find myself wanting to be with the outcast, the ostracized, and the misfit that don't fit at, in at the church. I can affirm the latter without supporting the former. He then defined churchy people. I define religious people as, a fo as people focused on dogma, tradition, and control over humanity, relationships, and vulnerability. He's describing people that sounds like the, the Jews that Paul would have been talking to. This seems like who he's describing. 
I replied to this tweet, knowing this individual. I said, you know, Jesus wants to say both, so to place value on one or the other is not really for us to decide. I said, by your very definition, Israel, Israel of history, was what you're talking about. And the Lord labored with them for a few thousand years, rebuked, corrected, became frustrated, yes, but he didn't leave them. And this individual responded to me, Jesus wants to save both, but I'm just one guy with limited time and energy, so I have to choose who and where I'm going to invest my time. I'm done with the religious churchy space. Y'all, I share this Twitter conversation because in our modern world, such a tweet is affirmed not by outsiders, but by Christians themselves. If Paul lived in our day, he could have tweeted, I'm done with the Jews. They tried to kill me. They tried to stone me. They called me a heretic. They sent me to prison. They have me bound for multiple years. I'm done with them. And here's the sad thing. A lot of Christians would hit the heart button or the like button and say amen. And yet to do so is not being a biblical Christian. Paul lived, if Paul lived in our day, in our day, he could have said, I'm done with the communists and the socialists and, and all the paganists that they embrace. I'm done with the lesbians and the gays and the bisexuals and, and transgenders. Let God sort them down. I'm done with the Democrats and the Republicans. I'm done with, I'm done with. And for each of those tweets, Christians would say yes, like and heart. And every time we do, we're acting in opposition to the mission of Jesus Christ. Because Paul welcomed everyone, whether friend or enemy or any in between. We are never fulfilling the church's mission when we are drawing away from others. We're never fulfilling the church's mission when we are deciding who it is our responsibility to or to not share the gospel with. Only when we live in such a way that people feel welcomed are we truly living on mission. That was a long point and point number one, and don't worry, not all four points are that long, okay? The passage continues. He lived there two whole years, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point that we need to understand about the mission of God is that our message, the message of our mission is Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom. And I'm going to summarize this point with just two Bible verses. The first is in John chapter five and verse 39. Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders that don't understand who he is. And you remember what he said to them in John chapter five, verse 39? He said, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you internal life. But all these scriptures, they point to me. And let me add verse 40. He then says, and yet you refuse to come to me. That's the first verse. And then the second passage that I want you to hear is Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. Jesus, is, again, is trying to help a different kind of people, help some people understand who he is. And the Bible tells us that Jesus' method for helping people to understand who he is is this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
Jesus said to one group, how can you reject me? You pour over the scriptures, as the Berean Bible says. You pour over the scriptures and all they do is point to me. How can you reject me? And to another group, he's like saying, do you really want to know who I am? Do you really want to have your eyes open to see who I am? Let me start in the Bible and just show you bit by bit how the Bible testifies to me. The message of our mission is this book and every aspect of this book pointing us to Jesus and what it means to live in relationship with Jesus. That's the way Paul did it. We just read those verses in 23 and 24 of chapter 28. Paul brought the Jews together and he tried. He says he tried to show them through the prophets, through the law. He tried to show them Jesus. The message of our mission must be Jesus. If we pr present a message in an unwelcoming way and it's not about Jesus, we should not be surprised if people go, I don't want anything to do with that mission or those people. We're called to proclaim, as Paul did, the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. The passage then goes on to say that he did this with all boldness. And that is point number three. We must teach the message of Jesus to everyone with boldness. With boldness. Now, I think, to best understand what biblical boldness is, we have to understand what biblical boldness is not. It's not biblically bold to be unkind. It's not biblically bold to be a bully. Listen to this beautiful verse from Colossians chapter four and verse six, you probably know it. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The commentator Douglas Moo wrote the following about this verse. We take it then that Paul is calling on Christians to speak with their unbelieving neighbors and friends with gracious, warm, and winsome words. I like that. We have some good words in the sermon. And winsome words. I love that word winsome. I read a book a few years ago called Winsome Witnessing. Winsome, it means attractive, appealing to others. Ellen White, writing about this verse, said this, all, listen to this, all who would advocate the principles of truth need to receive the heavenly oil of love under all circumstances. Reproof should be spoken in love. Colossians chapter four is not saying don't teach truth or don't answer the tough questions or don't stand up for your principles. It is saying do it kindly, do it gently, do it graciously, do it winsomely. If I'm online and I blast someone, if I make truth a personal attack, I'm not being bold, I'm being unbiblical. If I send a letter telling someone how they ought to do something and I attack them, uh, uh, assigning motive, assigning blame, assigning condemnation, I am not being biblical, bold, I am being unbiblical. Ellen White continued, love will do that which argument will fail to accomplish, but a moment's petulance, and we've been there, we've all probably done it, one single gruff answer, a lack of Christian politeness and courtesy in some small matter may result in the loss of both friends and influence. Biblical boldness is not bullying. It's presenting the message of Jesus 
from this book winsomely, attractively, appealingly. If you're not anointed with the oil of love from heaven, then you should not be speaking on behalf of Christians. You should not. Because it will just ruin yours and our influence. Biblical boldness is also not being cool. And I'm going to tell you a story about this to help you understand this. It's not about you're not bold because you're innovative or you got some crazy new method to reach people or whatever it may be. Pastor Jason and I were somewhere. We were, I'm not going to tell you where we were because it makes me sad that we were there, not because it was a bad place, don't worry about that, uh, but because of what was taught there makes me sad. We went to this, 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 this conference and, and we went into this seminar on church planting and church growth. And we were told in this conference, and I, I wrote it down, so I'm gonna share it with you, that we have to be bold to plant and grow churches. And, and here are the three takeaways on boldness that I took out of that, that conference. You must be bold for Jesus to grow your church by having a coffee bar, wearing jeans, and ordering our volunteers pizza, including any meats they choose on the Sabbath. I thought to myself, yes, boldness for Jesus. That makes sense. I'm all for being innovative, methodology, maybe not those so much, although I did wear jeans during when we got outdoor church, and I will say that there are some days that I like that. Uh, but being a cool church, being an innovative church, being a church that challenges the norms is not biblical boldness. It is trendy. Biblical boldness is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's biblical boldness. As found straight from the text, the Greek word that Luke wrote here is the word paresia. And it means this. Here's what biblical boldness is. And this is what it means. It's not being a bully. It's not being unkind. It's not being cool and trendy and innovative and challenging the norms. Here's what biblical boldness is. To speak what one thinks openly, plainly, without concealment or ambiguity. That's biblical boldness. So do you, do you hear those words in there? Without concealment, without ambiguity. In other words, young people, if we want to be biblically bold for Jesus, it means that people know who we are, what we are, who we follow, why we follow them, and what we're about. If we're walking around and people say, man, I had no idea you were a Christian, we are not being biblically bold. It's speaking plainly, of course, with love. It's speaking openly without concealment or ambiguity. Folks, we've forgotten the song that we sang as children. Sing with me. This little light of mine. Give me on key somewhere. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Then there was a verse, you remember this verse? Hide it under a bushel, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, 
Let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bush, oh no. Biblical boldness is not being a bully, not challenging the norms. It's sharing Jesus with everyone in a plain and open way, not concealing who you are or what you're about, but just being sincere, that there's no ambiguity about about what you stand for and who you follow and why you follow him. Hide in a bush, you'll know. We taught it to our kids, and we grow up and we run from it. And we hide it. The mission of the church is welcoming it all. It's using every passage in this book to point people to Jesus. And it's being biblically bold, which means there's no ambiguity about who we are and why we follow our Savior. And then the last point, number four. The mission of the church moves forward with or without us. Therefore, be humble. The mission of the church moves forward with or without us. Therefore, be humble. And this point actually comes to me from the last two words in the book of Acts. The last two words in the book of Acts are without hindrance. It says, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And and I thought this meant that his captors were giving him freedom to talk about Jesus. So he had no hindrance there. But the more I studied this passage and the more I studied this verse and these words, and as I researched in the commentaries, I was pointed to several verses where, where Paul talks about his captivity in Rome. Here's one verse in particular. Remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. In other words, what Paul is saying is he is hindered. He can't leave where he's at. He's bound with chains. He only has a limited reach, but guess what is not hindered? The word of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And when I read that, it humbles me. You know why? Because that tells me this. That reminds me of this, that I am not a gift to the gospel. The gospel and preaching the gospel is a privilege and a gift that Jesus has given to me. And you are not a gift to the church. The church and the kingdom of God is a gift to you. By the grace of God, we have the privilege of being bold for Jesus. By the grace of God, we have the privilege of talking about this book and showing people how this book tells people about Jesus. By the grace of God, we have the privilege of welcoming everyone in, whether they're our friends or our foes. By the grace of God, the word of God goes unhindered, and I simply have the privilege in this moment of being part of sharing that news with everybody. The book of Acts the book of Acts doesn't tie up in a, nighty, in, a, in a nice tight bow because y'all, the mission continues. The mission continues. And as long as I have the privilege, as long as you have the privilege in this moment of sharing Jesus, then why don't we? Y'all, the mission continues. So share boldly with everyone that you can everything in this book about Jesus and what it means to live in relationship with him. 
do it without any ambiguity, without any concealment, without any shame, without any fear. And know this, know this, whether you live or die, whether I live or die, praise God, the gospel, the good news will continue unhindered until the day that Jesus comes because the book of Acts does not have a conclusion because the mission of the church will not conclude until Jesus breaks through in the clouds of glory. And while we're here, let's use all we have to be part of that mission. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for the book of Acts that never finishes, but rather it reminds us that we are the ongoing story in the book of Acts. Lord, may we live out that mission in every aspect of our lives, in our homes, out of our homes, in our workplaces, before friends, before strangers, before enemies. Lord, teach us, remind us that it is such a humble privilege to be simply a part of the gospel moving forward unhindered and keep us on mission for your honor, for your glory, in your name, amen.